Hi, this is Karin Zesses with ASCOA Online. When it comes to climate change, it's going to take a massive worldwide economic transformation to stave off the worst effects. From decarbonization to infrastructure projects to climate adaptation, countries know they have to reduce emissions and protect vulnerable populations. The question is, though, who's going to pay for it? The price tag could be as much as $6 trillion a year to finance the transition away from a carbon-intensive economy. But globally, right now, we're only seeing about $1.4 trillion worth of commitments annually. How can we close that gap? What role does the private sector play? And what do new commitments announced at the COP27 conference mean for the investment landscape in green energy projects? My colleague Chase Harrison spoke with Juan Carlos Monterrey Gomez, vice chair for the implementation of the UN Climate Convention, on how developing countries are making the financial case for climate justice, and how his home country of Panama continues to be an exemplar for climate adaptation. Chase also spoke with Amy Barnes, head of climate and sustainability strategy at Marsh McLennan, about how the private sector is becoming more confident and aggressive when it comes to facilitating a green transition. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. Podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Juan Carlos, welcome to the Latin American Focus podcast. Thank you, Shay. It's my pleasure to be here. One of the focal points of the COP27 climate summit that just concluded in Egypt was the creation of a large loss and damage fund a fund that would disperse money to countries or regions that see some of the worst effects of climate change, such as natural disasters. By the end of the summit, member parties agreed to sort of a timeline of how it would be funded, but there weren't any concrete commitments to its funding. Do you think that this fund is going to come to fruition? And what are some of the roadblocks that are preventing countries from not making commitments towards it? That's a great question. The loss and damage fund is definitely the shining star of the COP27 uh, decision package. However, I do worry that there will be a lack of financing once the fund is established. The fund will be established. We will agree on different uh, operational decisions to make the fund run. However, I am very worried that developed countries will not be providing the level of financing that we actually need to cover the loss and damages that are currently happening in the global south. We have another agreement on financing that has not been uh, fully fulfilled by the developed nations, which is the $100 billion per year climate finance commitment that was put forward in 2009 and that was supposed to be accomplished by 2020. So there we have a historical reference on how developed countries simply don't comply with the agreements that they sign up for, because it's not a question of charity chase. This is a question of justice. It is a question of moral justice 
based on a historic problem that we did not cause, but that we continue to suffer the most impactful and damaging effects of it. This is a recurring theme around all these climate agreements, this question of climate justice and how to get developed countries to pay when it is developing countries that are facing some of the harshest effects of climate change. Over these successive summits, has the argument that developing countries are making toward developed countries to get them to put funding in these pools, is it changing? Are there new ways that developing countries are approaching this issue? There are multiple new ways where this issue must be approached. We cannot expect developed country governments, and by that I mean you know public sources of finance, to completely push this massive transformation of our economy and our society. What we need, as the Paris Agreement demands, in one of its three main objectives, is the alignment of the global financial sector, the alignment of the global economy with the objective of mitigation and the objective of creating resilience globally to sustain the impacts that we cannot longer stop from climate change. If we don't actually get the economy behind the Paris Agreement, then there is not amount of money that will be able to cover all the losses and all the damages that we are going to continue to suffer. It seems like these private-public partnerships and these blended financial models are going to be key to getting the private sector on board towards facilitating this massive economic transition. Speaking from the perspective of a government, you've represented Panama before. What are you looking for and what are you doing in order to get the private sector on board with helping you meet some of these national climate goals? So one thing that we did in Panama is that we started to get the housing order in terms of regulation. So first of all, we need to depart from the fact that Panama is a carbon negative nation. This means that we capture more climate causing pollution than the total amount of climate causing pollution that we release by, you know, moving our economy year after year. Having that said, that doesn't mean that we do not need to aspire for decarbonization because I do believe that we're actually, you know, in a great position to lead this transformation regionally. So one thing that we decided to do from the get-go was to set the basis for the functioning of an efficient carbon market nationally. So in order to do that, we first decided to develop the culture for estimating and reporting emissions at the corporate level. Because the truth, Chase, is that we simply don't have enough technical capacity in the country. We simply don't have enough experts equipped with the knowledge and the tools to conduct this you know, calculation. So we decided to create a national program called the Reduce Your Footprint Program. And through that program, in a voluntary basis, start working with companies, start working with organizations in different sectors that were committed with this transformation. We launched the pilot of this program in April of 2021. This was a program completely developed by very young engineers and also during the pandemic year, completely done offline, everything is digital. So our expectation was to you know, pilot with at least 20 companies. But what we saw was a great level of interest to the level that we actually registered about 70 companies in the first pilot year. And out of the 70, 59 were able to comply with all the requirements of technical standard. For the next year, there are already more than 120 companies registered in this program. 
What's next is that the government will have to continue further developing the other components of this market. And now the government is working towards establishment of the national offsetting mechanism, which will be, you know, the series of procedures for the emission of certified emissions reductions at the national level or the recognition of credits that were developed or emitted through voluntary market standards. And the third component of this a national carbon market is the Panama Carbon Stock Exchange, which is also under development, which is going to be nothing more than, you know, an Amazon for uh, the purchase and commercialization of high integrity carbon offsets. However, we know or we knew from the start that even that is not enough because what we need is the complete transformation of the energy sector. We need to completely decarbonize our energy matrix. However, it is essential to start by creating a culture, by engaging peoples at different levels of the private sector. And we figure out that the reason why so many companies were joining the program was not because the director was excited about it. It was because young engineers, young people, you know, in the corporate social responsibility departments, in the sustainability departments, young engineers in the technical departments were pushing their bosses to actually get into the program because this was important for them. It's phenomenal to hear about the efforts that Panama has made in the past couple of years, and it becomes evident as to why the country is considered such a leader regionally and even globally in what climate adaptation looks like. How realistic would it be for other countries in the region to follow some of the models you just explained that are working so well in Panama? When we think of a larger country like Mexico that has a really intensive fossil fuel sector, can some of these solutions that you just mentioned work there? So some countries in Latin America are already doing what Panama is doing. In fact, you know, this corporate program for companies was developed by creating a baseline of four other programs in the region. You know, we looked a lot at Peru. We looked a lot at Chile. We looked a lot at Colombia. We looked a lot at Costa Rica to see what they were doing and how the Panamanian program who take the best components of each program and then create sort of like a more efficient and sustainable program long term. Mexico, as it is such a massive um, state, a massive country, and also have a bunch of different security and, and, and violent issues, um, it's a difficult case and will continue to be a difficult case. At the end, Chase, the reason why we're not in track to comply with the Paris Agreement, the reason why globally, regionally, and nationally, we're still so behind, is because our politicians are owned by the fossil fuel industries. Our politicians are owned by special interests. They're simply not working for us. They're not working for the current and next generations. Governments have the muscle to push the investments, to realign the financial system so that everything that we do going forward will be in line with this vision of a green transition will be in line of this vision of a climate resilient yet you know progressive future. However, governments are not flexing that muscle because they're owned. So I do believe that the only way that we're actually going to make it till the end is if more young people get involved in decision-making. What a call to action, Juan Carlos. Thank you so much for being on the Latin America In Focus podcast. Thank you, Shays. It was my pleasure to be here with you. That was Juan Carlos Monterrey Gomez. Next up, 
We hear from Amy Barnes of Marsh McLennan. Amy, thanks for coming on the Latin America in Focus podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's predicted that it will cost around 4 to $6 trillion a year to finance the transformation away from a high-carbon economy. But right now, we're only seeing about $1.4 trillion in commitment per year. So we would need over three times the amount of commitments to reach that goal that will allow us to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. Amy, how would you describe the landscape around climate financing and decarbonization right now? And what do you blame mainly for this $3 trillion deficit? So if I can just go back a sec to, is there the technology to invest in? Because I think that has to be the, the first question we asked ourselves. Are there actually the projects there waiting for finance? And I think the answer now is, is pretty much yes. We do have a lot of the technology solutions. We don't have all of them. I don't want to, I don't want to mislead, but we do have a lot of the technologies that we're going to need to drive the transition which may not have been the case 12 or 18 months ago to the same scale. And all of them are saying that they need, or many of them are saying they need finance. And the words that we heard consistently at COP were that those projects need to be de-risk. And I think one of the challenges is that we don't have a consistent understanding of what the word risk means. Every person sitting around that table is thinking something different. Are they talking about the risk of technology, political risk, credit risk, currency risk, term risk? There are so many different drivers of risk that, until we can really unpack what that means, I think it's going to be difficult to de-risk some of those projects to make them more investable. Let's dig into one of those categories of risk. Let's start with political risk. You just referenced that the COP27 summit just concluded in Egypt. What kinds of issues in political risk are preventing countries from making more concrete commitments to either decarbonizing their economy or to investing in these kinds of new technologies? When we think about political risk, we think about companies really being very concerned about the risk of confiscation, uh, nationalization of assets. So the risk that if they were to invest, either that those assets would ultimately be um, taken into the control of the government before they could get the return on capital or that there may be export exchange controls that would prevent them from getting returns out of the country. So they tend to be some of the political risks that we think about. Would a solution potentially to that kind of question about if governments are going to interfere with these sorts of commitments be public-private partnerships? Are companies looking to get those kinds of assurances before they move forward with these investments? Well, I think there are two things. There is an insurance solution to, to, to political risk. But I think you're spot on um, in what you say that the public finance partnerships there was a lot of conversation about the need for blended finance as a lot of that governmental commitment would help to de-risk the projects, give them far more certainty. Now, whether that is blended finance coming from uh, donor or sponsor organiser, sponsor countries, or um, um, that, that's one angle. But I think there's also a desire to have local governmental involvement so they have skin in the game and there's more sort of trust around that aspect of political risk. Amy, could you maybe walk me through a technology that you would describe as exemplary for the kind of financing agreements and the kind of assurances from both governments, national, local, and private companies that shows the way forward towards climate financing? Is there one you would spotlight? If I think about technologies, we know that renewable energy, so decarbonizing energy systems, we we know the economics of those projects work. We understand that we're very low technology risk. We're very confident and comfortable about the operation 
of, of those assets. So a lot of those assets feel as if they should be very investable at scale. Some of the challenges, who's the project sponsor? Is there a project sponsor that can make the investment worthwhile? Because one of the challenges that we haven't really talked about is scale. The costs for some of the uh, financiers to deploy capital are significant. So they're not interested in $5 million projects, let alone $500,000 projects. So we need to have project of sufficient scale to attract that investment. And then I think those should be very attractive. When I think about scale, I think about some of these big marquee commitments that are made at these climate summits. So countries saying we're going to cut X percent of emissions by 2030 or by 2050. When these announcements get made, does it radically change the investment landscape or the investor landscape in the country that makes the commitments? I mean, what happens right after that announcement? I think if you would speak to the... um the beneficiaries of those announcements, they would say that, that no, that they aren't always felt. I think where we're going to see more identifiable, measurable, tangible outcomes is some of the bilateral donor commitments. And we did see some of those at COP27. We did see um, pledges of around $4 billion, far short of the $30 billion that we felt we needed. But there was a bilateral pledge, for example, between Belgium and Mozambique. And when it's that specific and, and, and tangible, I think we're more likely to see an outcome there, Germany and South Africa. So for specific projects and where it's been identified, I have confidence. I, I'm not saying that's based on experience, but that feels as if that that money will be far more uh, accountable than general pledges of $100 million with no specificity as to how and where it will be deployed or over what time frame, I should add. Another form of accountability that I'd like to hear more about is when the private sector makes a climate commitment, whether it's a company committing to decarbonizing their portfolio, like a bank, or committing to making an investment in renewable energy, let's say, what does the accountability look like on on that end? Who is holding private companies to their commitments around climate change? I think a number of stakeholders are, but increasingly regulators with with the need for climate reporting. But but I do think we need to have some humility about the maturity of climate reporting and the the quality of data. Some of our measurement of greenhouse gas emissions is relatively crude, sort of using industry averages um, and and sort of generalised data that I have a slight concern that private sector could be accused of being disingenuous where they have used best efforts to measure greenhouse gas emissions currently, commit to decarbonise, absolutely right, work on that. But as our ability to measure improves, we see volatility in the results. And I think that there could be accusations of, of, of potentially being misleading or being disingenuous where actually it's improvement in our ability to measure that's going to be responsible for some of those. I would also add that my background is, is, has been working with energy companies, and it used to be with the large energy companies that the thing that was sacrosanct was their dividend, the commitment to the dividend, as most people bought their stock as, as a dividend income. And I think if we would have those conversations with many of those dividend stocks now, they would say that the sacred cow or what was sacrosanct in, sacrosanct in their investment plans is their commitment to decarbonisation. That's the one number that they know they can't afford to, um, to, to miss on. One of the focuses at these climate 
conferences is the difference between the way some of these issues play out in developed countries and developing countries. Is the picture much different in the developing world or in the global south? I don't think I know the answer to that in terms of governmental incentives, but I can see some of the economic plans. There's real opportunity, um, a differentiated opportunity. So one of the speakers at COP27 was, I'm going to say he was a finance minister from Namibia. Definitely Namibia may not have been the finance minister. Um, But he was talking about the opportunity that they had to, to, I'd say, decarbonize the energy system, but to create an energy system. They're importers of energy currently from South Africa. They have the potential to build a clean energy resource, to potentially export energy. But on top of that, build a manufacturing industry that is based on the production of what are currently carbon intensive products or high embedded carbon products that they can do with lower embedded carbon because it's based from a renewable energy source. And I can see that that would be the case for many Latin American countries too. Yeah, these models of new green development not only present excellent solutions to problems of the climate crisis, but also really phenomenal new modes of development for these countries. What are you finding exciting? What is making you optimistic about climate financing today? At COP27, I spent similar amounts of time in the blue zone, the governmental zone, and then out outside of that uh, with the private sector. And in the conversations with the private sector where there were CEOs of some of the largest banks of the world, CEOs of some of the largest infrastructure investors in the world, CEOs of some of the largest manufacturers in the world that were making significant and far-reaching commitments. Now, the banks are key to that because those keys, <laughs> those banks have set themselves very ambitious targets for deploying capital to climate-aligned projects. And to do that, they're going to have to look far and wide for projects, not just in the global north, but also in the global south. Uh, so I'm really optimistic about the ambition that many of the banks have. I do think that we ought to be realistic, though, about if we're going to accelerate the deployment of capital, we need to be realistic about the priority countries that we focus on. So some of the most fragile countries will be very challenging from an investment perspective. And so if we can be realistic about the countries that we target in the first wave, provide confidence in the business plan, the technology risk, all of those other risk areas, and then we expand it. So I I, I would always suggest let's start somewhere rather than try and do everything and start nowhere. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the Latin America In Focus podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karen Zissis. This podcast was produced by Chase Harrison, Luisa Leme, and John Orbach. The music in this episode was Odd Beatbox by Alejandro Esquer, performed for America Societies in Casa series. Learn more at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Give us five stars, write a review, share, and subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.